Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. This is Philip Michael Sherman, a host of the channel. Our guest today is Mirabeth Wasserman, the author of Jews, Gentiles, and Other Animals, the Talmud after the Humanities. In Jews, Gentiles, and Other Animals, Mirabeth Wasserman undertakes a close reading of Avodah Zarah, arguably the Talmud's most scandalous tractate, to uncover the hidden architecture of this classic work of Jewish religious thought. She proposes a new way of reading the Talmud that brings it into conversation with the humanities, including animal studies, the new materialisms, and other areas of critical theory that have been reshaping the understanding of what it is to be a human being. Even as it comments on the rabbinic laws that govern relations between Jews and non-Jews, Avodah Zarah is also an attempt to reflect on what all people share in common and on how humans fit into a larger universe of animals and things. As is typical of the Talmud in general, it proceeds by incorporating a vast and confusing array of apparently digressive materials. But Wasserman demonstrates that there is a whole greater than the sum of the parts, a sustained effort to explore human identity and difference. In centuries past, Avodah Zarah has been a flashpoint in Jewish-Christian relations. It was partly due to its content that the Talmud was subject to burning and censorship by Christian authorities. Wasserman develops a 21st century reading of the tractate that aims to reposition it as part of a broader quest to understand what connects human beings to each other and to the world around them. Welcome to the show. Great to be with you. Our first question always asks our author to reflect on how they came to be interested in the subject matter of their work. What got you interested in the Talmud and particularly the kinds of questions that you're asking with regard to this particular tractate? Great question. There actually is a story here that goes back now 20 years to the time um, before I entered uh, the academic study of the Talmud. I was working as a congregational rabbi um, in Bloomington, Indiana, and 20 years ago, some white supremacists came to town. Um, the way their presence announced itself was through the distribution of a pamphlet of um, just hate propaganda. Um, it was sort of equal opportunity hate. Um, it was directed against immigrants, black people, queer people, and Jewish people. Um, mostly against Jewish people. And there was this whole two-page spread in this hate propaganda uh, that featured a discussion of the Talmud and had a long list of really objectionable, hateful statements um, that were uh, presented as citations from the Talmud. Um, So the arrival of this group to town really reshaped um, my work as a rabbi. There was lots of community organizing around how are we going to respond to this group. But it also piqued my curiosity and the curiosity of many of my congregants about the Talmud and about what the Talmud actually has to say about non-Jews. So people were 
banging on my door wanting to know, is it true? Is it true that the Talmud really says these vicious, hateful things about Gentile people? Um, and I embarked sort of informally at first in a study working my way through um, this, these lists of so-called citations. And I discovered that some of them were pretty reliable citations of Talmudic material. Some of them you could discern some relationship between what the Talmud actually said and what the anti-Semites were claiming it said. And some seemed purely um, made up with no connection to reality. Um, but what emerged was a sense that there is no one answer on what the Talmud has to say about non-Jews, that there was a complex conversation in the Talmud about it, and um, we needed a better way to talk about it than just pulling quotations from here and there. So it was out of that experience that actually uh, I came to what eventually became what I hope are my two big contributions through this book. Um, one is a, a really um, open-eyed wrestling with some really difficult material about how uh, the authorities in the Talmud address non-Jews, and there's a wide range of opinions that I survey here. Um, but the second piece is, what kind of approach can we take to reading this material um, that isn't um, selective, that isn't picking and choosing um, so that means I'm not interested in picking and choosing quotations from the Talmud that make the Talmud look bad to serve an agenda of hate. But I'm also not interested in an apologetic agenda, which is going to serve um, the Jewish communal public relations interests and in saying that the Talmud is always an expression of 21st century ethics of universalism and tolerance. I, I really wanted to wrestle with the Talmud in all its complexity um, and try to address what I think makes the Talmud distinctive as a work of literature in the approach that I took. Well, maybe just before we get into the book itself, you could provide us with a, a brief overview of what the Talmud is, what Avodah Zarah is, how it fits into the larger body of rabbinic literature so uh, that we have a, 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 a place to start from in our conversation. Great, great. Um, so the Talmud that I'm talking about is actually one of two Talmuds. There's a Palestinian Talmud and a Babylonian Talmud. I'm talking about the Babylonian Talmud, um, which really becomes the center of rabbinic Judaism as we know it. Um, but both Talmuds are ostensibly commentaries on an earlier rabbinic work called the Mishnah, the Mishnah is edited in around the year 200 of the Common Era, and it's a compendium of all the early rabbis' uh, opinions and rulings about every aspect of life. So it has a section dedicated to agricultural law, it has long sections dedicated to ritual law, but it also deals with criminal law and um, family law, uh, all kinds of topics. I say that the Talmuds are ostensibly commentaries because it's the nature of Talmuds to be very digressive. And often um, a particular uh, piece of Mishnah becomes a jumping off point in the Talmud for a much uh, more far reaching, wide ranging discussion. And so the fun piece about Talmud study for me is that is 
is the places where it um, takes flight from the commentarial function and um, engages all kinds of storytelling. Um, it's mostly organized around dialectic, a back and forth of different opinions, but mixed in are all kinds of um, expansive stories about the lives of the rabbis, some of them quite colorful. So that's the Talmud. Um, Avodah Zarah is one tractate of the Talmud. So the tractate is a subdivision of the Mishnah. Avodah Zarah is the rabbinic term for idolatry. It literally in Hebrew means foreign worship. And um, the Mishnah's tractate of Avodah Zarah is where the Mishnah lays out basic rules governing how Jews can relate to non-Jews uh, as business partners, as neighbors. Um, what's interesting about reading the Mishnah is uh, that it's so very different from what, what one would expect if one read what the Bible had to say about idolatry. Um, so uh, we know that when we read biblical materials, the attitude is clear. When you come across an idol, you destroy it. Um, and sometimes you destroy the idol worshipers as well. Um, but the Mishnah conveys a much different reality, and we get a glimpse of the Jews living in um, the land of Israel in the first centuries of the Common Era, interacting with non-Jews in all kinds of ways and finding uh, ways that they can live in a community where they're seeing um, expressions of the Roman imperial cult and um, uh, images and sculptures around them all the time. Um, that's the Mishnah. Now, the Talmud that I'm focusing comes from a really different cultural milieu. Right now, uh, we our, our understanding is that the Talmud is edited uh, in the 6th or 7th century, um, and it reflects the work of generations of rabbis who lived in Sicilian Babylonia. Um, so the main religious culture there is Zoroastrian, but there's a, a huge number of uh, religious minorities, Jews, Christians, Manichaeans, all kinds of folks are rubbing shoulders um, in in the Babylonian Talmud. And so Avodah Zarah in addressing relationships between Jews and non-Jews is um, addressing a, a, a rich cultural milieu with a lot of diversity. And so in, in your focus, uh, in a lot of your argumentation in this book, are you primarily looking only at the underlying traditions or commentarial or digressive traditions? Or are you also really talking about the, um, the stamayim, if we want to use those terms, the, the editorial layer? Is, is that the main focus or is it some of both? It's, I think it's some of both. It's a great question. And just for folks who aren't up on the new terminology of the stamayim, but um, this is a new insight about how the Talmud has come together, new of the past generation. The Stamaim uh, is a new term for the editorial voice of the Talmud, um, and it refers to probably uh, generations of rabbis whose names we do not know, who did the work of pulling all of these diverse materials of earlier rabbis together into what I would argue is a fairly coherent whole. Um, and I am taking the Stamayim's role as authors fairly seriously um, and suggesting that given that we now know that this is a work that took a lot of time to put together, 
we can presume that it was put together with some care. And we can start to think of these editors as not just editors, um, but really as authors exerting some um, design and uh, artistic insight into how things become part of a larger whole. So um, because I'm doing a literary reading of this tractate, Qua Tractate, I am really interested in um, the Stamaim who, who put their final um, mark on this work. So you raised this question of in the past sort of generation of, of Talmudic study as it as it has emerged in sort of the academy as a, a, a kind of religious studies or a study of religious texts, um, this, this shift towards a literary reading of the Talmud, which is sort of one of the major streams that, that are flowing into your work. What does that mean to read the Talmudic text as a literary whole? And how is your work sort of um, drawing from that tradition and also pushing a little bit even beyond it in some ways? Yeah, great question. Um, so um, there's now a long tradition of of um, doing literary readings of bits and pieces of the Talmud, um, and um, one of my teachers was was really um, this pioneer uh, in the study of rabbinic literature, Yona Franco, who taught in the literature department, um, the Hebrew literature department at the Hebrew University. And he really developed an approach to um, taking these narratives from the Talmud and from other pieces of rabbinic literature. Um, and he took a new critical approach and showed how um, all of the tools of literary analysis could be effectively applied to these stories, that they were works of art. Um, with characterization and thematic development and recurring motifs and wordplay. Um, so he was really the pioneer. And um, in ensuing decades, there have been really terrific contributions by people who say you can look for all of those tools for the wordplay, for the alliteration, for the assonance, for those motifs, not just in things that are marked as narrative, but also in the dialectical exchanges about around legal material that that too shows literary shaping a sensitivity to language. Um, so um, there are many folks who do this. Um, Shama Friedman, who gave us that, um, that the name Stamaim for the anonymous editors um, um, also does literary readings. Um, Aryeh Cohen um, talked about the poetics of the sugya of the, of the dialectic. Um, I, I should stop listing folks because I'll, I'll leave I'll leave some people out and I shouldn't. I've learned from folks. Um, so really, the innovation of my book, um, and I'm not the first one to do this, but um, what I hope is pushing the conversation forward. Um, is to take a much larger swatch of um, of material and say that it's not just a discrete narrative, it's not just a discrete dialectical exchange, but you can take a whole tractate and find thematic threads running through the whole thing. You can find literary motifs that weave it together as a coherent whole. Um, and it doesn't mean that every it and peace uh, can be, it, it's not coherence at that level, but I, I, I am 
for an overarching architecture sense of the whole. And that's why I'm especially interested in what other folks might read as digressions. Like, what is this doing here? There's nothing in the Mishnah that would suggest that this was relevant in the least. So um, one thing I, I, I was doing as I was studying the tractate was taking note of the of things that um, one wouldn't expect that seemed curious, that that um, that raised the question, well, why is this here? Why is this in a tractate that's called Avadazara, that's dedicated to idolatry or to the idolatrous or to the non-Jew? What is this doing here? And it was by sort of following the crumbs of the most curious digressions um, that I was able to come up with a theory of, of the whole, of what was holding all the pieces together. Well, one of the things that you, you say early on, and this leads into sort of a, sec, a second sort of stream that, that leads into your book as well, is, is that this tractate really is about rabbinic anthropology. This is about discussions of what constitutes humanity, universal humanity, distinction between humanity and other kinds of creatures, and then what separates the Jew from the non-Jew, and then even in some later categories where those lines blur. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, could you say something about what you mean by rabbinic anthropology in this work and who your conversation partners outside the field of Talmud are that are helping you think about these texts in that fashion? Right. So by, by rabbinic anthropology, as you say, I'm suggesting that in this tractate, um, which the Mishnah announces is about negotiating relationships between Jews and non-Jews, I'm suggesting that what the Stama'im are doing is using discussions of non-Jews to think with, to think with about what it means to be a person. So once we're thinking about differences between Jews and non-Jews, we're necessarily thinking also about what Jews and non-Jews have in common, which is another way of saying what is it that all people have in common? What is it that makes a human being a human being? Um, and not something different, um, not an animal, for instance. So um, this was a surprise to me that that line of questioning would be as fruitful as it was. But as I was following the crumbs of all these curiosities about the tractate, it struck me that the overarching logic that was holding everything together um, was this movement through a chain of being. So one of the things that um, that I noticed about Tractate Avodah, Zara, um, it wasn't a new discovery by any means, but in the first chapter of Avodah Zara, we have all of these stories gathered together um, about salvation um, in the, into the next world. We, we have stories of great sages, but also of Jews and non-Jews being invited to life in the next world. Um, so in that chapter, I saw a lot of attention um, to the soul, to the parts of the human being that aren't visible, um, that aren't shared uh, with animals. Um, but then in the next chapter, a big puzzle for me is why there are so many animals Um, symbolic animals and also real animals crawling around this chapter. Um, And that's what suggested to me that the overarching structure had to do with framing what it is that sets people apart. Um, So animals, and then um, there's a lot of attention in the next chapter to objects, to to things, um, 
which one would have expected actually to come up a lot sooner. Um, but all of the images, the idols that one would expect to find in a tractate dedicated to idolatry um, are really not very engaged until much later in, in the tractate. Um, but yeah. So just as a practical question in, in reading through this work, and then um, I, I promise I'll get to a question about one of the chapters in a second. What's really amazing is uh, Talmudic study in and of itself is a rather intricate undertaking in terms of understanding the text, how it's put together, situating it against um, a, a broader cultural background. And then in the midst of all of that really detailed work, you're also bringing in a wide range of critical theorists. So you're then also bringing Bakhtinian analysis to bear, um, for instance, in the first chapter. How, how did that process work in terms of research and writing that you're sort of oscillating between these, I can't even say two worlds of discourse because there are multiple uh, individuals you're engaging in, in sort of contemporary critical theory. What was that like? How did, how did you, how did you do that? Oh, well, I should say that for me, um, the sort of bigger question, the bigger literary questions serve as my way into a really difficult, challenging, abstruse text. Um, my teacher was Daniel Byaran, who, um, I, I think sparked my interest in Talmud as an academic pursuit long before I entered the academy when I read his book, Carnal Israel. Um, I had encountered Talmud before studying it in religious settings and seminaries and things like that. And, um, and thought I didn't have a head for it. It seemed so hard, so challenging, so oriented towards details and, um, in its presentation to me, oriented almost exclusively to questions of law and um, really just left me cold. And um, it was pretty, a, a pretty intimidating edifice that, um, that the big shelf full of huge Talmudic tomes. Um, but Carnal Israel um, really just was like a breath of fresh air for me and demonstrated how you can read the Talmud um, in a way that would engage it with um, questions um, that were of deep relevance to anyone who was interested in the human experience. So in Carnal Israel, it was about body and spirit and gender and sexuality. That was super exciting for me. And so I should say that I came back to Talmud really through Daniel Boyarin, who, um, for whom Bakhtin has always been really important. So um, the Bakhtin was sort of my starting point um, into the Talmud. Um, and then Talmud really just become a playground. It's so wild and wonderful when you take it out of the vice of legal thinking. Um, so literary criticism just became a way to, to open it up. Um, and um, I'm new to post-humanist theory, but it was so fun to move back and forth between these worlds. So I was reading about animals uh, in the second chapter of Tractate Avodazara at the very moment where critical animal studies sort of burst onto the scene uh, in the humanities and the post-humanities. Um, and um, it just became really exciting to think that um, 
the questions that the rabbis were engaging and addressing in their own idiom, which is a pretty anomalous idiom to be sure, are questions that are still with us and very much alive in the academy. Well, let's look at at one of these uh, uh, chapters. So in your first chapter, um, you're looking at how the line between Jew and Gentile uh, is defended. And you you sort of open with this eschatological story where all the nations are coming before God and answering for why they haven't um, followed Torah. And there's a back and forth between God studying Torah and the nations and sort of a, a really firm line drawn between Israel and not Israel. And then you say the rest of the track, the rest of the section slowly sort of pokes at that and undermines that to where the distinction is not quite as clear. Um, why do you think the text is proceeding in that fashion? Uh, why is it, tr- you know, not speaking in a, a straightforward fashion, but slowly working its way through these questions? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's helpful to think uh, about dialectic in the Talmud as um, being a much broader commitment to a back and forth in the realm of ideas. That is, it's not just the text, the discrete passage of a text that moves back and forth between opinions, but there's an oscillation of ideas that I would argue organizes rabbinic thought. And on the one hand, on the other hand, and um, multiple possibilities of how one can think about things are awakened in in the back and forth. So um, back and forth between a very stark uh, binary division between uh, Jews and non-Jews, that's sort of the starting out place. Um, And the fun of reading the tractate for me is seeing the way that that boundary becomes challenged and undermined. um, And, uh, you know, there's a lot of crawling under, jumping over it and dissolving it altogether. Um, And in the end, sometimes I get the impression that the rabbis are so keen on telling stories and making laws uh, to draw this line between Jews and non-Jews because it's quite evident to them that without all of that effort, the difference between Jews and non-Jews would not be discernible at all. That is, I read all of the energy around separation as a measure of the rabbi's observation um, that Jews and non-Jews look the same, act the same, um, our struggle with the same uh, animal impulses um, and aspire to to the same kind of spiritual height. So um, I, I want to say that in a way that's not too Pollyanna-ish. Um, there's certainly a lot of real viciousness and xenophobia directed to non-Jews in Tractate Avodah Zarah. But I think, I, I do think... Um, that the back and forth becomes uh, really important to hold in view all the time. Well, your second chapter is actually the the chapter from which the entire book gets its um, title. How did so? You came to critical animal studies because of this observation in the Talmudic uh, passage, um, 
and in this chapter, you argue that that they're creating a chain of being. Who's on this chain of being? Who's at the top? Who's at the bottom? And in what ways does the chain fundamentally start to break down as you read this section mm-hmm. of the tractate? Yeah, well, I think the chain of being is um, that terminology um, is something that um, I actually draw um, from the humanities and generally general, right? It's um, it's our heritage um, from Plato and Aristotle and um, winds its way down through Western civilization generally. Um, but it so it is something that ties Jews. Um, together with other folks in late antiquity. And um, the hierarchy generally starts with divinity. It works its way down through angelic beings to humans um, and then to animals um, and, uh, and, and down to inanimate objects. So that's, that's the chain of being. Um, What's interesting to me and what really comes through in the second chapter is that there's an of courseness about where it's just sort of evident to the rabbis about where humans are in this hierarchy. But where humans are in this hierarchy um, is really a lot less important to them in a lot of ways than where Jews fit in, that they're a lot more culturally invested in the special position of Jews vis-a-vis God um, than they are to to humanity in general. Um, And um, that means that for them, it's just self-evident that humans are animals. That's not a question for the rabbis. The question for them is, um, what it will, what it takes for Jews to separate themselves from the lot of human animals and other animals, um, and to, and to rise closer to divinity, right? Um, what's interesting is what's taken for granted, um, for these ancient rabbis is something that we in Western culture today, uh, are still trying to wrap our heads around. And that's where critical animal studies comes in, um, as moderns, in a lot of ways, we've forgotten our um, animality, that humans are part of this animal kingdom. Um, and enlightenment humanism has been so invested in um, making a real divide between humans and other animals that it's, a, it, it's quite refreshing to discover um, um, among the folks in late antiquity um, that they knew that um, for them um, – for them, that was that was something uh, to contend with and to to try to rise above. But it was obvious to them that humans are animals. So um, moving between these two cultural moments has been very generative um, for me in thinking about cr- the crisscrossing divides of uh, Jew versus non-Jew, human versus versus animal, and also male and female that um, that come through prominently in that divide as well. Yeah, I was going to ask you, this is probably one of the best covers of a book that I have uh, come across in a long time. It's a medieval uh, uh, Jewish manuscript of uh, Moses receiving the law and Aaron. And uh, the men, the Israelites are standing behind them. And then behind them are these female Israelites who have animalistic heads. So I know there's a healthy body of scholarship about medieval animal-headed figurines, 
Um, and, and interestingly enough, I think in many of those cases, it's the the uh, Israelites who have animal heads and the non the non Jews who have human heads. I would I'm not quite positive. I'd have to go back and look. But why why do these female Israelites have animal heads? How does that relate to the tractate that you're discussing here? Um, yeah, it's a great question. Beyond my field of expertise, certainly these. Um, the illuminated manuscripts of this, this particular one is from um, a festival prayer book from um, the 14th century Germany, I think. Um, and um, it really exposes the shortcomings. The, the, the reigning theory I know for a long time was that um, in these illuminated manuscripts, Jews, um, the artists, gave any human figure an animal head because of the um, because of the second commandment about images. Um, but this really shows the shortcomings of that theory when um, the men have human heads and it's just the women who have animal heads. So that suggests that something a lot more complicated artistically is going on. Um, for me, it serves as a really powerful pictorial representation of this tendency to align women with the animal um, and men with the human, right? Men are higher, women are lower. And so I'm always interested in looking at, and I, and I do this in the chapter, Trace, how these, um, how the various binaries that are put into tension um, align and, and, and misalign, right? So um, one of the tricky things in talking about animals um, is that the animal um, across cultures is used as an insult, right? It, we um, that that sense of the chain of being where humans are on top and animals are below is so deeply ingrained that merely comparing a woman to an animal or a non-Jew to an animal um, is uh, really off-putting and disturbing and troubling. Um, and um, what's really refreshing about critical animal size is it turns that on its head and um, right it says that, no, we're, we're all animals. It's not just the folks that we don't like. And um, it's an invitation really to think through what are we saying um, when we're calling some people animals and denying the animal uh, in, in others. Um, so in the sort of the, this first chapter, then you're looking at the relationship between Jews and non-Jews. In the second chapter, you're broadening that to a, a wider frame in some sense to now include animals and the way in which the line separating animals from other non-human animals slips is is uh, not stable. Uh, it, in the remaining chapters, then you start to move in a different direction. You talk about things and objects and uh, you engage what's called the new materialisms. Uh, what is that critical turn, and how does that help you make sense of the remainder of uh, this tractate? Um, yeah, it's a great question. Um, so the new materialisms really emerge as a critique of um, of literary criticisms turn in, in a generation ago. Um, to discourse. So it's a move against making everything about discourse, um, about how we, um, how we talk and how we write. Um, 
and I read the numerisms as um, an invitation to engage with the thingness of actual things out in the world. Um, so it becomes a really helpful conversation partner as we think about how the rabbis um, relate to things of the world, problematic things like idols and also everyday other things like tools. Um, and um, building on the insights of another rabbinic scholar, another Mira, by the way, Mira, Mira Balberg, I, I, I love her work. And um, she was able to discern in um, her study of rabbinic texts on um, purity and impurity, uh, a distinctive rabbinic materialism, which is interested in things and the way they enter human use. Um, so she's emphasizing all the time people's relationships to things. Things become important when they're brought into um, into the human caring and human intention intentionality. Um, and something very similar happens in the relationship um, to idols in um, Tractate Avodazara for the rabbis. What makes something an idol really is how people think about it, how it enters human consciousness. Um, so that's an interesting twist on materialism. Um, and I think it's actually a helpful intervention to new materialism to be able to acknowledge um, that whenever we're talking about things, we're still talking about things, right? That you can't, um, you can't get, a re get away from um, what scholars do, what humans do in our relationship to, um, to the material world, that language is always intervening. So I'm pushing back a little bit on the new materialist critique of the emphasis on discourse. Saying we can't get, we can't get away from it. We need to acknowledge exactly what discourse does to our relationship with stuff. Um, so that's one move that I make um, as I near the end of the book. But the other move that I make is to suggest that in the end, um, the tractate really is not nearly as invested in the distinction between Jews and non-Jews as it is in between the distinction between the rabbis kind of Jews and everybody else. Um, so I spend uh, a chapter talking about the figure of the Am Ha'aretz, an unlettered Jew or a Jew who isn't quite with the rabbinic program. And I show how the rabbis sometimes save their worst invectives for these non-rabbinized Jews um, who they come down on pretty hard. Um, and, um, in the end, um, there's this beautiful twist in the end that um, they, they kind of release their obsession with the non-Jew Jew divide and can imagine non-Jews like uh, the king of Babylonia um, getting along just fine and sharing meals together. Um, so long as um, there is this respect for the rabbi's uh, distinctive authority. What do you think this book says about uh, the future of how we study Talmud and rabbinic literature more broadly in the academy? Um, I, I've read a couple of reviews of the book as well, and uh, several of them comment on on how how well the critical theory is put together with the study of the Talmudic material. 
but have gone on to sort of wonder what would someone who didn't have a background in Talmud make of a work like this? Um, is the Talmud translatable beyond um, beyond the realm of folks who specialize in it? And so I wonder what, what your thought might be. It's not really a critique, but what your thought might be about that, that observation. Yeah, I sure hope so. Um, I think for a long time, we um, sort of granted the Talmud to, um, to folks who were reared in the traditional world of Talmud study. Um, and, um, and a yeshiva background is great training for dealing with the challenges of the Talmudic text. Um, and actually lends itself to an orientation to philology um, because it is so keen on attending to the details. Um, and I really do think those details are important. Um, getting, getting the text right on its own terms is important. Um, but my hope always is that folks who are outside of the field won't be scared off by the Talmud. That will, um, it is um, a curious um, but wonderful literature, and um, and it's not all about law. That's what I always want to say. So the way in for some folks outside of the field of Talmud might be through the narratives, which are rich and wonderful. Um, and I think there, the Bakhtinian approach is really helpful, right? I mean, um, to encounter the Talmud um, as a novel um, means that it will have flights of fancy, it'll have narrative, it'll have these sort of dense engagements with other kinds of linguistic expression. And um, I'm interested in not privileging one of the many different kinds of ways that the Talmud talks over any other. I think that is one way that the Talmud becomes um, more open to uh, a wide array of different readers and, and different scholars. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think sometimes I take for granted how accessible the Talmud could be if you come to it with your own questions, but I really would assert um, that it, it's it's a matter of what questions are you asking, right? And um, and I think it's a great service when non-specialists comes with questions about why does it read like this? What does the Talmud say about this topic? It's helpful to read the Talmud uh, with new eyes, and um, I think it can only serve everyone um, to better integrate Talmud studies into the um, wider world of the humanities. And um, you might notice one of the arguments that I was trying to make in, in my introduction is that the Talmud has always already been part of the study of the humanities, right? So um, it's always been a conversation partner. And um, that's why I think it's drawn the ire of anti-Semites over the years is because it, it was read. Um, so I'm interested in sort of more open, more generous, and generative readings of, of the Talmud. But you ask a good question. Um, the work will continue for sure. Once again, the work is Jews, Gentiles, and Other Animals, the Talmud after the Humanities, and the author is Maribeth Wasserman. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.